wake up in the morning You hear the work bell ring And I march you to the table You see the same old thing Ain't no food upon the table There's no fork up in the pan But you better not complain, boy You get in trouble with the man Let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special shine a light on me. Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and this week, I'm going to be turning my attention to Stephen King's latest novel, The Institute. So I apologize that it's been so long. It's, uh, the book itself came out in September, and now it is late October. I finished it a while ago. I just have not had a chance to get to my review, and I, I found myself with a couple hours on my hands this morning on this beautiful Sunday in October. Uh, as I record this, the, the leaves are at peak foliage. The sun is shining brightly and the, the rest of my day will be comprised of me fighting with my pool because I haven't closed my pool yet. So please wish me luck. It was stupid on my part to wait this long. I just got all of the leaves out of it. The water is icy. And uh, when I dissemble all of the equipment, I'm sure I won't be able to feel my fingers anymore. So. Don't know why I felt like sharing that with you, but hey, there you go. That's what you get on a Sunday morning on the Stephen King cast, or whenever you're listening to it. So um, before I get to my review of the Institute, I want to read some listener emails that have been piling up in my mailbox, so I do apologize. So I'm going to start um, with Josh, who writes, Dear Stephen King cast, I'm writing to say wow. I've just stumbled across your podcast and what a gem it is. I've been spending the summer making my way through King's works and was looking for a podcast or series to complement it and I cannot stress how perfect your series is for this. The analysis and structure is always perfect and pertinent. Although I've only recently started listening, I learned something new each episode. I'm currently listening to your fantastic analysis of The Dead Zone a book which personally I felt a little insubstantial and just had to write to tell you how much I love your podcast and I thank you so much for being one of the few series delivering this kind of material. But one thing, I am shocked that you didn't like Cujo. It's one of my favorites and I was a little disheartened that you felt uncomfortable reading it. I found it such a page turner and even a little optimistic. However, your analysis was insightful as ever and provided me with great trivia. So thank you so much and I hope you continue to enjoy your work. Josh, a constant reader. Josh, thank you for writing in. And it's funny that you mentioned Cujo. Of all of the episodes that I've ever done, I get a lot of feedback on uh, my Cujo episode because <sighs> a lot of people are, like like you say, just shocked that I didn't like it. And it's not that I didn't like it. I did like it. I, I do want to go on the air. Or, I don't know. I, I need to re listen to my review. Um, maybe I, str I straight up said that I didn't like it. 
I did think it was ugly. I thought it was an ugly book. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, it's interesting how, how, how that, that kind of sticks out there. Um, but thank you, Josh, for, for writing in. And um, up next, we have Bryant, a longtime listener who writes, Hi, just wanted to drop a line and say how great your tribute to your late lamented pooch was. If you'd gotten to the end of it and said, you know what, no review today, that had been fine by me. Podcasts that work, work primarily because of the personality of the host. So for me, that was 100% on topic. It was a tear or two to be seen escaping my eyes while I heard on my way to work on Saturday? Why, yes. Yes, indeed they were. Uh, speaking of rolling tears, if you don't cover the various lock and key one-shots, including the Weeper, Open the Moon, which is awesome, I might have to roll a few more. Um, Bryant, thank you for your kind words. Listeners, uh, you'll know, long-time listeners will know that I normally am joined by my furry co-hosts. Um, unfortunately, I had to uh, put one of my furry co-hosts down this past summer, um, and I mentioned it on on the show so for anyone that that wrote in um, there was a lot of outpouring i really appreciate it and that's what bryant is is uh discussing as we speak my other furry co-host uh you might hear her uh licking herself to an obscene amount um below the table um, but she is she is here in body and in spirit um in terms of lock and key i don't know what i'm gonna do next with lock and key i have not read the one shots um and now that uh, Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez during uh, San Diego Comic-Con announced that there was going to be new uh, lock and key material and now that we have the, the show coming out soon I think that it is time for me to probably start going back into the well house <laughs> um, and start reading some of those those one shots to, to kind of get caught up um, up next um, we have uh, Marianne uh, another longtime listener who writes, Dear Constant Reader, I'm so sorry to hear about Sunny. What a loss for you and your family. I have lost a few beloved pets in my time. It's heart-wrenching and a true grief. They are your family members and a part of your daily life. I heard it in your voice and I heard it in your speech. I felt your pain. He was obviously such a loved little guy. While I'm emailing, I'll also let you know that my husband and I made a trip over to the States from Scotland in the spring. I've been busy preparing for and exhibiting since then, and we went to the Stephen King tour in Bangor, Maine. It was a fantastic experience, and I can't thank you enough for your recommendation. I've been meaning to email you about it for ages. Stu was so full of interesting Stephen King facts and seeing various landmarks and understanding a bit more about the history and geography of the place in Stephen King's history has really rounded out my understanding of a lot of his work. It was also amusing that each time Stu asked, who has read, I put my hand up, Eventually, everyone on the bus asked, have you read everything? My reply was, as much as I could, yes. That's why I was there, duh. We went well over the time, tried out whoopie pies from the garage, much the amusement of the locals. Sugar-filled craziness. Such a good day and experience. Thank you for your recommendation. It's a holiday we will remember always. That's great. You know, for me to make that trip, it's, you know, a four-hour drive, four or five-hour drive, four someone to fly across the Atlantic to to make that that's wild so I'm happy that you did it um, Mary and I think that that's fantastic and I Stu I really enjoyed the the tour that was a really good great gift that my wife uh, surprised me with uh, that was a really good Christmas present and uh, I really enjoyed our time in Bangor that was a lot of fun um, and the Stephen King tour again for those of you who uh, 
don't know what I'm talking about or what Marianne's talking about, there is a Stephen King tour that you can take run by Stu of Stephen King Tours in Bangor. Um, I did a whole episode in which I reviewed the experience. So just uh, go back. It's on the tail end of my four-part IT review. Um, so check it out there. And if you're interested, just check out sktours.com and you won't be disappointed. Up next, we have uh, Johnny, who writes, Hi, constant reader. Long days and pleasant nights to you. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years as a go-to when I finish a King novel, and I really appreciate your insights. I'm currently rereading the Dark Tower series, and I have just finished Wizard and Glass, and I'm now halfway through The Wind Through the Keyhole. I just finished listening to your, your review and bonus episode on Wizard and Glass and had a thought about the future of the Dark Tower and the evils within Todash space. Now, um, spoilers, guys, for the Dark Tower here, just so you know. Now, I don't want to sound morbid here, but something to consider. What if Stephen King has already written his final novel, the one that would close his multiverse and is stored away until even that we all dread as his fans his death? And what if that novel is the final Dark Tower novel that covers a final quest of Roland and his quartet reaching the tower? And rather than returning to the Mohane Desert, they in fact manage to save the tower once and for all, cleansing the multiverse and bringing a fitting end to his life's work. Um, just some thoughts that I need to let out. Would love to hear what you think. Keep up the great work, Johnny. My God. Could you imagine what would happen with the one-two punch of... It's a, ter a terrible way of putting it, but I'm sorry. But like the, the emotional meteoric impacts that would hit you if Stephen King passed away and you're dealing with that grief and then it's announced that based on his final wishes a long lost secret dark tower novel would be released posthumously that is uh that that is yes it is a morbid thought um but it is also one that would be a very impactful topper to his his life experience and his his work as a writer um and to do that as a that would be a gift to all the constant readers i think that it would establish or just cement his legacy as being someone who since the very beginning forged a relationship with his fans and wrote with a voice designed for his fans um and to give one final gift that that would be that would be in his wheelhouse for sure i've never thought of that but that was uh that's a really really cool thought not that nothing is cool about stephen king passing away i take that back that's a really again bad way to phrase it um but uh the idea that there would be a gift um there that that is definitely something that that is i would love another dark tower book <laughs> In some ways, in some in other ways, I, I love the ending for what it is. Okay, um, then we have Michael who writes, I'm a big fan of your podcast. You do a great job. Thank you, Michael. Having a run through all of the book and movie reviews of my personal King favorites, I wanted to make a request that you do the book and movie version of Riding the Bullet. I remember the book release and it creating quite a stir as it was the first mass market ebook. I recall not being very enthused at the idea of downloading a book and reading it on the computer, especially since I don't own it. I didn't own a computer at the time. Consequently, I never actually read it and I'm not sure if it was ever released as a physical book. I'm curious if that's why you've never reviewed it. I did see the movie on TV and remember it being pretty decent. Of course, that was a long time ago and it could be wrong, haha. 
given the release of this book made for a bit of an anomaly in, this, in the King bibliography, and I thought you might give it a review. Thanks for your time, Mike. Uh, so Mike, I did review it and it was published um, in physical form um, within the collection Everything's Eventual. Is that right? It was around that time. But that was, it was released in a short story collection. I did review it um, in, if it is Everything's Eventual, I don't know why I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but it, um, it was in my review of Everything's Eventual Part 2, um, all of the short story collections. I did a handful of reviews of each of the, of some of the uh, short stories, and then a couple years later I went back and I cleaned it all up, um, and I reviewed the ones that I didn't read the first time around. So it's there. I don't know if I will be watching the uh, Stephen King, or the, the, the David Arquette starring um, adaptation, but if you want my thoughts on the book, uh, I which I really enjoyed, uh, you can check out my, my review if you just go back. And then we have Gabe Rodriguez, who writes, Dear Constant Reader, I hope that you're doing well. I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on It, Chapter 2, which I saw last night, and then re-listened to your original review on Chapter 1. I seem to be in the minority, but I preferred Chapter 2 quite a bit, although I'm actually noticing a pattern. The average filmgoers who really liked the first movie seem to not like this one as much, whereas diehard fans of the book, like myself, are appreciating this one a lot more. Overall, while Chapter 2 was far from perfect, I found it to be a strong conclusion to the narrative, as well as a love letter to these characters, and an ending with an emotional depth. It's easier for me to break down my thoughts into bullet points. Not only did I enjoy the Adrian Mellon scene as an opening, but it actually gave me a new appreciation for the chapter. To be honest, if I, I'd never been a huge fan of that chapter in the book, as it felt very tangential, focusing on characters who were never seen again. I only, I only re recently found out that Stephen King based the incident on a real-life homophobic hate crime that happened in Bangor in 1984. If you go online and look up the killing of Charlie Howard, it's actually unnerving how accurately King recreated this tragedy in his novel. I thought that the filmmakers, by being so faithful to the book, made the scene very respectful of the real murder, whether intentionally or not. It's also a sad reminder that homophobia and hate crimes are just as much of reality today as they were in the 1980s. Overall, Andy Muschietti dramatized the scene in a way that made me realize something that I guess I never realized when I was reading the book. That what awakens Pennywise from his slumber is not so much the desire to eat Adrian Mellon as it is the vile act of hate itself. Next bullet point. The adult losers are all well reintroduced, with Bill Hader being the MVP in my opinion. The film does an excellent job showing us scenes and each adult with flashbacks of their childhood counterparts, sometimes weaving the transitions seamlessly. The Mrs. Curse scene was excellent. It was always one of my favorite scenes from the book. Stephen King's cameo was funny and a nice touch. And I just want to jump in right here. It's been reported that um, there was a scrapped other cameo of a King family member... Um, that Joe Hill was going to play the young version of the, that Stephen King character <clears throat> um, in one of the flashback scenes, but that got cut, and that would have been that would have been cute. That would have been fun. I loved the homage to John Carpenter's The Thing, the sequence with Stan's disembodied head, growing legs. While the book fan in me was sad that Audra and Tom had their roles greatly reduced, the film-goer film in me had to admit that he didn't really miss them and that the screenplay worked fine without them. One little nitpick. I don't like that they changed Henry Bauer's death happening at Richie's hands instead of Eddie's. 
One thing I always loved about the book was how Henry, the most psychotic and violent bully to ever live, would end up being killed by Eddie, the most scrawny and frail of all the children he ever terrorized. This makes Eddie's death later on feel all the more fateful. Pretty much the only thing in the film that I didn't care for was the whole Native American mythology element, which wasn't in the book and felt a little tacked on here. In the book, the entire ritual of Chud is only vaguely explained. Bill first mentions it as some Himalayan ritual he read about in an article, and later Ben suggests the smoke hole ceremony from some Native American tradition, but that's pretty much it. I get for a 2019 audience used to big franchises, with epic world-building like Marvel and Game of Thrones, the filmmakers felt a need to add more world-building to their lore, but what they came up with never really added to anything. What I like most about Chapter 2 is the way it makes the sewers so much of an environment, much more than Chapter 1 did. The entire climax goes way beyond your typical horror film and enters full-on cosmic horror, H.P. Lovecraft-style with world-bending set pieces. This is the climax that such an epic 27-year spanning story deserves. And for all of the changes they made from the book, I'm glad they kept one of my absolute favorite scenes, Pennywise's heart being physically ripped out and destroyed. I've always loved that and felt that after 1,100 pages of reading about this threat, it's not enough to be told that it's just defeated. It's imperative that you feel the kill physically happen. I also really enjoy that the, that the movie has a nice sentimental ending that says goodbye to all the characters as they go their separate ways. I feel like so many modern horror movies never have strong endings. They just end with a sequel hook or a simple resolution. I like that chapter two goes the extra mile and gives us the story an added emotional gravitas. It earns the right to have a sentimental and even kind of beautiful ending. Overall, I think that Andy Muschietti did a really good job with both of these films, but I felt uh, more catharsis with this second entry. Of course, neither film can compare to the affection that I have for the novel, and likely will always have. Several years from now, I'd love to go back and rewatch chapter one and chapter two as a double feature with a fresh pair of eyes. So, I think that's important for me to read um, uh, emails like the one from Gabe, because he and I saw the same movie, but we saw two wildly different movies. His experience and the way with which he engaged in the movie was much more positive than my experience and the things that I really didn't like, Gabe seemed to like. And, you know, I don't, you know, for, for my, uh, I guess my, my counter arguments to everything that Gabe uh, says there, you know, you can always listen to my review of It Chapter 2, um, which I found to be very disappointing. You know, um, just I, 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 didn't, I didn't love it. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that there are people out there that did because that's what I, I wanted um, from my experience and I'm glad that some people were able to get that um, experience. Um, and then up next we have Dustin who writes, uh, I'm really enjoying the following along with the podcast as I read through King's bibliography. I just finished reading The Colorado Kid and I noticed couldn't find a review of it. Did I miss it or did you not review it? If so, why not? I always look forward to following up finishing a novel with the podcast. Keep it up and thanks. Dustin, you got me. You got me. That's one of my blind spots here. I uh, did not I did not review that novella. Um, it's something that I'm going to get to. I promise you. I promise you. Um, but it is one of those ones that I, I purposefully did not do because I knew that it was one that I would get to... Um, later on down the road so at some point i will get to it um so keep listening to the podcast because there are some some areas i need to clean up one more email um and then i'll feel pretty good about uh 
shrinking my my inbox and, and getting all your thoughts out there. So this is from Martin, uh, who writes in, um, and this is another It Chapter 2 email, who writes, Dear Constant Caster, thanks again for some great content. I hope you and your family are well. I wanted to write to you with some thoughts on It Chapter 2, which I went to see last week. A preface would be to mention that I read It for the first time when I was 12 or 13 in the mid-90s. It left a deep impression on me, and I also really enjoyed the miniseries with Tim Curry putting a scare in me that lasted all through my adolescence. I very much enjoyed Andy Muschietti's Chapter 1. It wasn't flawless, that's a high bar to set, and I really think so much of it came off so well that I was left with both big expectations as well as trepidation for the second chapter. After all, it's always hard to live up to that first album. And on top of that, I'm part of the chorus of people that think in both the book and miniseries the parts where the protagonists are kids are the most compelling. I'm happy to say that I was happy by what I saw in Chapter 2, mostly, but there are some issues for me that I would like to touch upon. From a technical and conceptual point of view, I think they did a fantastic job. I think Pennywise is wonderful, wonderfully realized, but that was already accomplished in Chapter 1, of course. I also think that most, if not all, of the iconic visual scenes, the fortune cookies, the Paul Bunyan, to name a few, were excellently done. I even think the way they made the final encounter and Pennywise's spider form was very well done. In my opinion, they managed to sidestep folly, and I realized, and I really enjoyed the ending they gave Pennywise. Now, having said that, I feel a bit shortchanged on how they managed or didn't manage to bring the six, seven protagonists to life. This was not an immediate feeling, but one that settled in um, in me after days of mulling over how I felt about the movie. People are complaining that the movie was too long, but I felt not nearly enough time was given to unfold the emotional baggage of the characters and just honestly simple characterization. To me, only a few of them ever felt like real people. We blitzed through where each person was in life. I personally felt like one of the most important and laden scenes could have been when Mike phones up everyone um, but I feel that that was rushed through. Mike, incidentally, was the character I felt like was the most neglected on this front. Why didn't we spend some time on this very intriguing fact that Mike had opted to stay behind? How was his life? I personally felt like some of the strongest parts of the adult of the story is the tragedy of Mike and Stan. Mike stayed behind as a watchman, losing all of his best friends as well as having to remain in what is essentially a haunted town, and Stan, of course, epitomizing the fact that none of them had ever been able to have children. I could go on, but I think it's best to stop here. I would be interested in hearing your thoughts on this and the movie in general. Um, so that's that's Martin writing in again. Martin, thank you for writing in. Um, and those were some of the problems that I had as well, um, which were documented in my review. Okay, so I'm going to put a pin in that for now um, because we're about, where are we now? We're about 20 minutes of emails and there's been a bunch of Stephen King news that I want to that I want to address before I get to my review of the Institute. So the latest news is that the Outsider trailer dropped this past week for um, the the HBO adaptation of last year's uh, novel which came out in the spring of 2018, the the Outsider. Um, which is a genre mashup of um, a nice crime thriller mystery um, meets, you know, a, a classic Stephen King supernatural horror element. And um, I was excited about this adaptation as soon as I heard it. 
heard that uh, Jason Bateman is uh, executive producing, I believe, starring in, he's going to be directing, um, and this is also, uh, you know, so and it's also going to be on HBO, so there's a quality level there that I was really looking forward to, and Ben Mendelsohn is in it, and that guy rules. So um, there was a, a little bit of a tease, a little bit of footage in an upcoming HBO uh, kind of sizzle reel that came out uh, back in the summer. And then we got the official trailer, and Twitter blew up very positively around it. It looks sharp. It looks slick. It looks really good. Um, and it's really playing up the true detective chord. Um, you know, so I think that's going to be able to draw in people that, you know, want to get their true detective fix and who might. And I think the people that wanted more supernatural stuff are their true detective. I think that you are definitely, um, you're in luck because you're going to get that detective mystery. But there is, there is a major significant supernatural presence in, in the novel. And I wonder how that's, you know, when I actually sat, that's the first time I vocalized this. That there is, you know, with, with, with whether it be the, the Yellow King or um or or the the, the whole uh, you know just kind of like lovecraftian edges of the the true detective universe that have been built up by fans but not explicitly stated by the showrunners uh I, there are people that are chomping at the bit to get a a, a bite of crime thriller with supernatural flavoring and to know that you're about to get that, that's very exciting. I think that this is going to drum up a lot of interest um, and, you know, just restoke the excitement that um, that True Detective used to, used to be able to do. And uh, with the book, I, which I really, really enjoyed, and the more I think about The Outsider, the, the more I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it. I was really immersed in it. I was just captivated in it um i know that some people have an issue with what there's a shift there's a there's a, a definite shift without spoiling anything but there is a, a shift in in genre in tone um it, it very drastically changes course halfway through the book i liked that i liked that decision i think it was very bold um, some people didn't, and some people say that they like the first half better than the second half. To me, I see it as a whole. I'm fine with it. But I do understand that there is a delineation in the middle of it. I wonder if um, they're going to follow the same course, and I, I wonder what people who don't know what's going to happen in this book and who might get drawn into that first half and the quality of the first half and what the reality of the world is that's built into the first half how they're going to feel when that shift happens and the second half becomes a new thing i don't know it will be interesting i'm, I'm gonna i'm very excited to see what what film twitter will be saying about it and what what the buzz online is going to be but i'm this is definitely something to look forward to in in that sludgy dredge of winter post Christmas I am beginning to loathe January you know March always was the, the longest month
but at least with March, you're, you're close. You're so close to spring and it's getting a little bit lighter. It's getting a little bit warmer. Um, you, you can see the, the hint of hope, but January, my God, January. I mean, it's when everyone takes all of the lights down off of the trees and the celebration that, that lit up the, the darkness of, of the, that's present during Christmas time, it's gone. And then all of a sudden everything is just dark and it's cold and it's you have nothing to look forward to. Um, I do not like January. And so I'm very excited that we are going to be getting something for me to look forward to in January. The Outsider, a feel-good story about crime that you didn't commit. I, I, I'm really looking forward to it. Jason Bateman, by the way, is great casting for that role. Um, that could not be more perfect. He is the greatest um, uh, Stephen King protagonist actor type that has never been cast in a Stephen King role until now. Do you know what I mean? Like he just really fits that that Stephen King protagonist vibe. And Ben Mendelsohn as the detective, he's definitely described differently in the book physically, but you get Ben Mendelsohn in a role and that dude just knows how to bring it. So Outsider, I'm really, really looking forward to it. And really cool about it is I, I, I almost gave the name of this character. I'm not going to name this character because it is a surprise. Um, but I'll say that there is a character um, who will go nameless right now, but those of you who have read the book know what I'm talking about. It's really exciting that this particular character has just become a late career memorable character for Stephen King. Um, and now we have seen this character in more than one uh, adaptations, which is just really, really neat. So the, I know that King loves this character. I know that audiences love this character and I'm interested to, to see what um, this character come alive in, a, in another format on another show. So that's great. It's, it's great all around. It's a win-win and I, it's something to look forward to. Okay, speaking of adaptations and very much in line with what I'll be talking about, I promise at some point during this episode, but The Institute, um, this will be a TV show developed by David E. Kelly and Jack Bender of Mr. Mercedes fame. I am behind, I'm way behind on Mr. Mercedes, but I, like, it is on the A and, what is it, the AT&T network or whatever. It is a shame that it is on a, a streaming service that no one subscribes to. Um, if this was on HBO, everyone would be talking about it. Um, if it was on FX, people would be talking about it. If it was on Amazon or Hulu or uh, Netflix, people would be talking about it. But it is uh, somewhere that you just cannot find it. And it's a shame because it is a really well done episode to episode procedural um, that just follows the life of a great set of characters and it is not flashy though the first season did have a remarkable death scene that again I do not know how people were not talking about it um, it's a it's a show that should be celebrated more 
And I, for one, am not doing my part in celebrating it because I haven't watched season two. And like I said, I'm behind on it. Um, but I, I look forward to uh, reacquainting myself with it. Um, and all of you should go out and, and, and seek it out because you will, um, you, you'll enjoy it. I mean, Bre Brendan Gleeson um, as Bill Hodges is fantastic. And I am, longtime listeners know how I feel about Mr. Mercedes the book um, but whatever feelings I have towards Mr. Mercedes the book cannot be cannot be applied to the series as I think the series is, is something fantastic um, and a lot of that has to do with the performances and uh, the, the, the David E. Kelly and Jack Bender of it all um, David E. Kelly doesn't know how to make a bad show um, so it, it looks good it, it just has he just he just knows how to make a solid 60 minutes of television and jack bender is one of the greatest working television directors of all time um so there's just a lot of talent um on screen and behind the scenes so i strongly recommend you um checking it out and maybe they will do for mr mercedes what they also did for the institute and that is a tease for what's going to become uh later on in this episode when i review the institute also, um, breaking news, uh, a Skarsgård will play a Stephen King villain in an adaptation of one of his most beloved books, and it is not It Chapter 3. It is Alexander Skarsgård who will be playing the walking dude himself, Randall Flagg, in the CBS all-access miniseries of The Stand. So, this was not casting that I expected, it's not one that I, I really would have picked, but what Skarsgård... It's, it's crazy that the Skarsgård kids are, now have um, claim to fame that they, they both have played the, the most iconic Stephen King villain. Um, but what Alexander Skarsgård has is that charm that Randall Flagg needs to possess, and... He has a mania. He can he can turn on this mania in his eyes, and when he flashes the smile, and there's just that that insanity that's lurking in his eyes, that he has that. So, if you have seen, I mean, he he camps it up in uh, True Blood, but if you have seen Big Little Lies, he's monstrous, and um, he has that that charm and that monstrous nature that I think will lend itself very very well to the stand. Again, not my first pick, but he. I have no doubt that he will be able to bring this character to life. Um, he's good. He's really, really good. And um, he will do well um, as Randall Flagg, for sure. Uh, what else? Um, there's been some other casting. Uh, Stu Redman. Um, no, not Stu Redman. But uh, um, Greg Kinnear has been confirmed as... Um, uh, which, it's, again, it's different, not what I would expect, but Kinnear is really good. I like Greg Kinnear. Um, and I can play him, I can see him playing that character. And, uh, yeah, Whoopi Goldberg has been cast as Mother Abigail. Um, so the, the, the names, oh, uh, Heather Graham has just been cast as Rita Blakemore, uh, who was not in the 90s, ABC miniseries. This is a character that um, book fans will know. She played a pivotal role in Larry's um, be the beginning of his journey. 
um, both uh, emotional and, and, and physical journey on his way out of New York. Um, so, I'm, I'm, And I think that, again, not who I would expect, but I can see why they would cast her. Um, and I think, again, I think that Heather Graham is great, and I think that she will do a lot with that particular role. Okay, uh, what else do we have? Um, we have... Castle Rock season two coming out this next uh, this this next week, which is a, a strange mashup of Salem's Lot stuff with Misery stuff. Whoever would have thought that that was a combination that would ever work? We'll find out. Um, with some um, you know Sundog, uh, Needful Things a little bit with uh, some Stand by Me stuff. Um, coming in, we have um, Tim Robbins of uh, Shawshank Redemption fame coming back to to play Pop Merrill, who was the the, the old um, kind of huckster gangster heavy, who didn't appear much but had been referenced frequently and was in the Sun Dog and kind of was a <clears throat> led the way for uh, Leland Gaunt in some ways to, to come into town. So what's interesting here is that season one established that um, this that, that this particular version of Castle Rock that operated on its own version of the tower, if that's how we want to reference it, existed in a world where needful things had occurred. So, but I assume that this is taking place post-season one and there's a pop Merrill who... If that's the case, Pop Merrill existed um, prior to Needful Things, which occurred in before season one. So we're, we're getting, of course, just I, I don't know how how much of a stickler you should be um, when you go into this because this is not you should not. I, I am not going into this thinking that this is a prequel for Annie Wilkes. That this is just a different interpretation of the Annie Wilkes character that's operating again on another level of the tower. So the Annie Wilkes story that we have in Misery is its own thing. And this is a what if story. What if Annie Wilkes, before she became the Annie Wilkes that you know, wound up going to Castle Rock um, simultaneously as Ace Merrill was involved, Pop Merrill was involved, and something was going on in uh, Salem's lot. So there, there's just there's there's a lot. It's it's a big 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 stew of a story um, that is playing with more explicit Stephen King characters than we had gotten from season one, um, where we got um, Alan Pangborn, um, but now we're getting Pop, we're getting Ace, we're getting um, uh, Annie. Um, we're, we're, we're getting, um, I don't know if there's, if there's any more and we're getting, uh, the Marston house. Uh, so it, it, it will be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I enjoyed my time with, uh, season one. I enjoyed my interview with Dustin Thomason. So I'm rooting for, um, Dustin and Sam Shaw. So, uh, I will be, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to review week by week, um, just just with the time, I would love to. I would love to, guys. But um, I will definitely give my thoughts on it one way or another um, d during the season two, um, whether it's a kind of wrap-up review at the end or like a midpoint check-in or a week-by-week. Week, I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So Castle Rock season two is coming. Uh, what else? Um, so 
I have not had a chance to pick up Full Throttle yet, the, the short stories by Joe Hill, but I'm really looking forward to reading that. I think I'm probably going to hold off until November and just really sit down um, during, uh, during Thanksgiving time, you know, that, that little break of time that, that we have Thanksgiving weekend. I would love to just build a fire um, in the fireplace, uh, pour a glass of wine, and, and just sit on the couch and, and read. I, I don't know why I'm building that up in my mind, but it's a checkpoint that I... I want to just sit and read during that weekend, and that would be the book for me to do it. So maybe I'll get to it before then, um, but if not, that that's kind of when you should expect um, the review of that. So if you haven't bought it yet, you should, um, because when it comes to short stories, Joe Hill knows how to, to craft a fantastic short story, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I believe it includes the uh, collaboration between he and Stephen King with In the Tall Grass, which uh, had been released prior to this. It was downloadable, and it was and In the Tall Grass was just released on Netflix as an adaptation. I was going to review it. I'm not going to rewatch that movie um, to review it. Uh, I don't think. I, the novella is incredibly potent. It is a surreal, dangerous, dark, icky, sticky, uh, suspenseful, surreal, emotionally draining reading experience that gets under your skin. It sticks on you. It is it is powerful. Uh, it is really, really well done. It is a fantastic read. Um, that it ha is Lynchian at times. It is uh, Lovecraftian at times. It, it reminds me of 1408 in that, in, in just how it gets into your head. The, the, to me, the movie does not do any of that. It has a, a hammy, wonderful performance by Patrick Wilson, uh, who just comes in <laughs> out of the grass in a completely different movie. Um, and, and when he goes camp, it is fun to watch, like his performance in in, in um, Insidious Two is a lot of fun, um, and he kind of brings that same level of energy here, where he's just having a great time. Um, and anybody that's a fan of uh, Korean's Clearwater Revival uh, might get a kick out of what he's doing in this role. But honestly, it is uh, a bunch of people running through the grass, screaming each other's names for ninety minutes. And uh, the, what works in the book, to me, does not translate um, in, in, into uh, the audiovisual medium. People might disagree. Um, you know, I know that there, I mean, Vincenzo Natali uh, has a track record. Um, you know, he, he did Cube in the 90s, which was, um, it's a cult classic. He did Splice. <laughs> Um, about 10 years ago. Um, so he, he knows how to bring it. Um, I was looking forward to it, and I was disappointed. Um, I did not enjoy it. Uh, like I said, it uh, the, the things that I thought worked really, really well about the book just wasn't, he wasn't able to recreate those sensations um, in the movie, um, which was unfortunate. So that was In the Tall Grass. Okay, everybody, um, now it is time for me to discuss the Institute. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give 
my general final thoughts um, at the end of the review, and I'll get into the Stephen Kingisms and the Easter eggs. Uh, but leading up to that, I'm just I as I as I read, I didn't I didn't take as much thorough notes as I normally do. Honestly, I just wanted to read it and I wanted to enjoy it without uh, really applying those, those analytical eyes that, that I, I used to with the majority of the books reviewed in the Stephen King cast. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that you're not going to get my, my thoughts as I go along. It's just, um, I'm going to give some, some bulleted, uh, sequential events of the novel to just orient ourselves as we go along and then I'll get into a more in-depth examination of my thoughts on the book so like I normally say this gives us the the, the foundation upon which I can build my analysis um, it's just a little bit different um, so chapter one um, it starts off with chapter one night knocker okay and that is an, a, an alluring title one that I had never heard um, and so, ooh, I want to know what a night knocker is. Um, it, it, it was, it just really, it doesn't quite set the stage because it, it isn't a, a major part of the plot. It, it services the, the character of, of Tim, um, you know, and, and what and the role that he will play in, in shaping this town and bringing this town together that sets up um, a major part of the, the conclusion of the 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 book. So if we didn't get him as a night knocker, then um, Luke at the end of the book wouldn't um, be able to, to, to be victorious against the Institute. Um, but let me get to that later. So um, the, this, 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 this character that we're first introduced to, um, Tim, is, it's, a, you know, it, it's a type of character work that signifies King's strengths. We, we get to know him very, very well through action. Um, through a little bit of exposition around um, his life, um, you know, getting off of the plane and then hitchhiking his way to this small little town. Um, he, he's presented as a very likable lead, very much in the, 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 the realm of Stephen King protagonists, as we have seen before. And in fact, the, the, the kind of rambling nature um, that, that we see him as um, being presented, it reminded me very much so of Barbie from Under the Dome, and this this kind of um, outsider, <laughs> not not like the outsider outsider, but this this outsider coming into town and and um, um, meshing with the town itself. Um, it, it really brought back some Under the Dome vibes. Okay, so that all of that is is the night knocker and the the, the this first section of the novel it it's interesting because i don't know king spends so much time having us get to know this character and the town that he's going to make his home and then we don't see it again for hundreds of pages to the point where i wondered if we were ever going to get back and if it was just some i i didn't i didn't it, it, it's weird we don't check back in um it's a weird way to start this rather than starting with rather than starting with Luke and then getting all the institute and then when Luke escapes I can see then establishing this town it is just strange the how, how he decided to structure this I, I don't have really a problem with it I just found it a little a little odd the way that he he decided to go about it um, all in all I thought it was a, a really good beginning of the book um, one of the actually the the highlights and 
Oh, I'm going to spoil my overall thoughts on the book, but I don't think the rest of the novel lives up to the promise presented um, in chapter one, The Night Knocker. That was where my interest in the book spiked, and um, I, I just don't think that anything from this point forward actually lived up to my hype of, of the novel. Okay, chapter two, The Smart Kid. Uh, and this is what I'm talking about. It just, it feels like it's a different novel. It feels like he had almost two ideas. He had this image of the night knocker and this man um, who's kind of a roamer and who, who had had some setbacks in life and is finding a second chance in this town and starts to bring out the best in this town and becomes uh, an important part of this town through the, these nightly, um, just making people safe at night. And, 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 and being a part of a, an older way of life. Um, I, I, I think that that was an idea that he had for one story, and then he had an idea for another story, okay? And then he, he, he smashed them together, and I just don't think that it was really successful. I rather would have seen some sort of investigation with the Night Knocker character. Um, I, I would like to see what would happen if the Tim character became embroiled in some sort of supernatural or town-based mystery. And that would be one book, and I'd like to see another book about the Institute. But to put the two together, um, though I always like when a quartet forms, as we will see later in this book, I just don't know if this was a successful um, smashing of two different stories. So I just spoke earlier in this podcast about how much I liked um, The Outsider for it being almost two novels put together. And here we go. We have another example in which late-day Stephen King very, very clearly establishes two different stories. And, and I do want to state that in The Outsider, he, he doesn't do this from a plot perspective as, as drastically. It's, it's almost two genres in The Outsider. Here, it is two different stories. Um, it is interesting that this is a pattern that is establishing in his works in his later years to some success in some ways and, and uh, less successful, I, I think, in this case. Um, but to, to get with this particular chapter, The Smart Kid, um, you know, I mean, in retrospect, I like it less. At the time, I was, I was fine with this, um, this kind of hard reboot already within the, the, the book because it's disorienting and it's creating a, um, a large world. Um, in, in the world of the Institute, and I think that that is important. Um, it, there's a sprawling sense and a danger within the sprawling. So in the, the, the Night Knocker chapter, the darkness feels to... It, it's palpable, all right? And he is this, this lone character of security and safety, and I feel safe being around that character, um, even though the darkness itself is so... Um, oppressing. Um, and then here with the smart kid, I, I just sensed him being within that darkness and the dangers that lurked within that darkness. I felt that there was danger around him at all times. So King is always successful at being able to do that. Um, and I do admire how well he is able to create this, this all-encompassing dread and this sprawling world 
um, that's going to play heavily into the, the, the latter half of the book. So what we get here is we get another supernaturally gifted Stephen King youth, and I will talk about that later in the book um, or later in this review um, in Stephen Kingisms because clearly this is not the, the, the first um, time that we have seen him um, craft a character that is a child that uh, is um, supernaturally gifted in some way or another. Here we have a character that has a low-level uh, telekinetic ability, um, and I'll get to the, the fact that it is low-level um, um, low level as opposed to some of the more, uh, um, uh, sorry, some of the, the, the characters that are, are massively superpowered. We, we don't really get that. Um, the, 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 the Charlie McGee um, level, um, or even the Danny Torrance. Um, you know, this is, this is a different flair. Um, but what he does is that he shows how different this character is because he is a genius. I'm going to get to this later about how effective this is, or, or in this case, how ineffective it is. There are there are times in which Luke is um, his genius does show how different he is as a person, and how um, difficult it must be for him to exist in a world of non geniuses. Um, but there's also times he just feels like a Stephen King kid. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get to that later. But right now in this book, the the, the purpose of this chapter is to show, to establish that he is a genius, that he does not function in normal schools. He is going to a, a gifted school that they can't even service him because he is so much of a genius and he's going to have to go to, um, you know, um, college at like age 12. Um, all of that is amazing. Let's see that character again. I don't think that King lives up to the promise of this particular character. I think he might have bit off a little bit more than he could chew with what he was able to um, to create with such potential, with a character with so much potential of, of intellect. Um, but this is what he's establishing now. And so he creates this genius character with loving parents who want to support him, and it's all undone with the, um, the abduction by the the characters from the institute so another writer would write this scene differently um you know after the fact uh you know we we might see the crime scene with the police and neighbors who are shook or maybe we'd see it you know take place in the house um as the father wakes up but King turns the scene on its head by keeping the focus on the abductors. And what King does really, really well <clears throat> that I have really appreciated since doing this podcast and rereading all of his books is he does not romanticize. He does not glorify villainy. He makes it so matter-of-fact and blue-collar and day-to-day -day and kind of dumb. Uh, and that, to me, makes it more horrific. And... These are just people doing their job, and they're doing horrific things with their job, and to them it's just their job. And we see this being played out, I think, more transparently than ever. I'm going to get political, so I know that that pisses some people off, but Stephen King is a political person. He has always been a political person, even, this, even though this book is not—I'm going to say it right now. The book, when he wrote it, he didn't write it 
with the inspiration of the, the, the immigrant children being detained. There are parallels, but that was not the, the genesis of the novel. Um, but he does have his thoughts about that, you know, and um, so anyway, make a long story short, there are those that are in power that are, are making very inhumane decisions and it's very matter of fact. And we do see that that type of mentality taking place within the scene with these characters who are murdering parents, abducting children. Um, and it's so, it's so matter of fact. Uh, you know, and, and King does this by keeping the focus on these characters. We get to know them. You know, they don't, they're not, they don't seem to be monsters. They're, they're just flawed human beings doing a job. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of what he did in, um, with the true not, you know, these were like horrible people that were abducting children, killing children, torturing children. But, you know, the, the perspective was was not shown from from the outside. It was shown from within. You know, we saw them for who they were by living in their heads and getting to know their fears and their interests and their hopes and their dreams and their perspective. And similarly with um, uh, Peenly Prentice, um, King completely subverted all expectations and everything that he had established of the monsters working for the Crimson King um, over the years, once the Crimson King was uh, introduced in Insomnia, by the time we reach Book 7 of the Dark Tower and we start to see more of the inner workings of the, the, the you know, monarchy, whatever you want to call it, of the, the Crimson King, those that work for him, it's not some Sauron-ish, orcs, Nazgul, faceless evil of just like Frank Franzetta, um, you know, art inspired uh, of just like demons that rise up from the earth and are just in inherently evil. No, they, they, there is a blue collar nature and a, a daily grind of the job. Um, and, and limited knowledge and limited empathy and, 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 and limited uh, emotional skills of, of the characters that are doing some horrific work. And he continues this here with the, 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 the black ops team that, that go in um, and, and take the kid. Okay, and then from Luke's perspective, he wakes up in a windowless room, and it's creepy because everything is just wrong. It's his bedroom, but it's not his bedroom, and, and King does this scene very, very well. And he goes into the hallway and he meets the, the first of the characters that we'll get to know living in the Institute, and that's Kalisha. Um, so all in all, it, it, chapter two, The Smart Kid, it's a very effective um, introduction to this character and to the, the, the threat of the novel, the conflict of the novel. It's uh, an effective introduction to uh, Kalisha, to Luke, to the Institute. Um, and it sets up just the, the this poor kid who is equipped with all of this intellect, but right now is not, in fact, his intellect, which was supposed to be his, some amazing gift that was going to give back to the world and give back to his family and, and, and launch him into a, a beautiful life, um, has now been ripped, and the dream um, has now turned into a nightmare. And he does that very, very well. Okay, chapter three, we get shots for dots. We meet Nikki, the other kids, some of the staff, and we begin to explore the grounds of the Institute. So we, we start to get that, what King does very well. He starts to detail everything um, very, very well. So we feel 
he's so successful in creating this uh, the, the the setting that I feel that I'm there. We we get the Gladys, the smiling guide, who tells him that his life is now meant to serve. Um, and this whole operation feels very reminiscent of Dinky Earnshaw in Everything's Eventual. Um, so the the uh, the world that Dinky was living in and the organization in some ways that was very similar to the Institute um, is is very similar here um, in, in terms of, of service and how his employment in of the, the organization in uh, Everything's Eventual and the the state of 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 living um in Aljul Ciento in the dark tower it's very similar to this king likes to explore the ideas of the villains being able to trap the characters um and the victims with um with perks of of gifts and comfort and so the fact that they can eat basically whatever they want as kids they can smoke and drink there is a um Oh, it's like it's it's a Pinocchio-ish um, kind of fairy tale, right? And it's it's dark and it's depressing, um, and being trapped with freedom is is something that is uh, I like I like King being able to do that. It, it it's very disorienting, um, and it really makes me vulnerable um, as a reader. So um, in all of this. Uh, and I'm really speeding through this. I acknowledge that. Um, in all of this, in all of the experiments that Luke starts to go through, the shots for dots, which, though King mentions it often, as often as he mentions it, it's never fully, clearly explained. I think he thinks it is. And I, I don't think that I'm misreading here. I, I just don't think that... And, and King has always been good about being able to visualize very abstract or strange concepts. The warehouse of the mind um, in Dreamcatcher. Um, the externalization of the voices in um, um, of Jesse's head in, um, in Gerald's game. In... Um, the, the, the Dogen of, of the mind um, that takes place in Song of Susanna. And he's really, the deadlights, as abstract as that is, and the macroverse, uh, all of that, he, he is really good at taking things that just don't make sense and being able to have them make sense, which is why I'm so disappointed in Shots for, shots for Dots. Oh, that, there's a Stephen King catchphrase. I, I did not include that in... Um, in the Stephen Kingisms, but that that definitely is. So that's a little taste of what's to come. So when I get to the Stephen Kingisms, and if, if I forget to say shots for dots, I'm calling it out now. There's another Stephen King catchphrase that he likes. I, I just it at no point is it ever truly expl- like it is explained, but I just don't think it really makes a lot of sense. Um, it's said a lot, and you know they they wind up seeing the dots and they see the swirls, but I don't know. It's just kind of there. It's kind of like there was a lot of ideas in Dreamcatcher that kind of didn't add up to anything, and I feel that a lot of a lot of the same stuff is occurring within this novel, with with the, the ins and the outs of the the testing and what's occurring in the Institute. Um, I just don't think it's as clear. I mean, there's going to be a lot of parallels between this and Firestarter. I think that what he does very well in Firestarter and does less well here is that. The, 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 the rules of the world, the rules of the powers, the, the goals of the villainous organization, it's all very clear. 
in Firestarter. It is less clear here. In some ways it works, um, because in Firestarter there are good guys and there are bad guys, and that is less clear in the Institute, and that is more reflective of a realistic world that we find ourselves living in, and I fully acknowledge that. But at some level, in terms of plot construction and the, the, the concepts that are occurring within the novel, I I think that it is a disservice um, that things are not as clear as they could be. And shots for dots, and the dots, the um, uh, the, the Stasi, um, the Stasi dots, I believe they're called. Uh, that is something that I, I think is it's a disservice that it is not as clear as it could be. So in all the experimentation, um, something changes in his brain, and Luke manages to keep it a secret um, that he's now a telepath. Um, not just the telekinetic, and this becomes the source of tension because it's and and it's it's a good one. Now that he has a newfound power, that power is also a danger to him because th- they're looking for this and they don't know that they've done something to him. And how long he can keep it a secret, that is just something that I don't know if King even knows what he's doing. Um, or if it just comes out instinctively that he's able to build in these ticking bombs that create the suspense, that not only do we have a character that whose parents were murdered and he was abducted and he wants to get out, and um, but now there's... And, and his his friends are, are being taken to a, a, another part of a, the mysterious, the more mysterious of the mysterious facilities. Um, he, he has this section where he now has a power that he needs to keep uh, keep quiet. You know, it's it's masterful storytelling. This is why he is the king. Um, Nikki is taken, Kalisha is taken, um, and then he's able to find a, a back door to the computer. He outsmarts the computer, and he discovers that his parents were murdered. Um, and it's sad, and it, it, it you know, I, I like the introduction of the computer, how it's his glimpse into the outside world. I'll get to this again. I think it the potential is never truly fulfilled um, to its its maximum potential with the, the, the fact that he has this tool that he's hiding. Um, there is no payoff of it one way or another. He uses it um, to, to help another character. It, it shows... <clears throat> what it does is that it is less of an active... Uh, plot point or or character trait that uh, that that he's able to use this tool to his advantage. It more from a passive standpoint shows how lax the institute had become in their security, and the function of the computer is to illustrate to Luke how lax it has been and gives him the resolve that he needs to take the chance to escape because that was an unmonitored computer. Okay. What I rather would have seen is him from within bring about the ruination of the Institute or somehow be able to use the computer to acquire the skills that he would need to become a hacker in order to hack the the system, um, in order to cause trouble, in order to send out word um, 
that could cause tension. Um, but no, it, 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 the, the function of the computer is to show that the Institute, as its own character, grew sloppy. And that Luke is able to take advantage of that sloppiness. So the, the computer does function into the plot. It does function into the escape that eventually occurs. But not at the maximization of Luke's skills. Not as a weapon that Luke uses against the Institute. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Then we have the chapter Escape. Luke begins to lay low um, and use the weapons that he has with him, um, his intellect and his powers. He's remaining patient. He's taking in as much information as um, you know he can about the place, the people within him. He's just um, he's beginning to explore the different levels um, after gaining everyone's trust because they think that they you know have broken him in. So it, it's it's a good you know surveillance section. Um, and just, you know, acquisition of knowledge section. Um, more is revealed about the back half uh, and the purpose of the Institute. Uh, the, the children are being forced to psychically assassinate people of interest. Okay, so here we go. This is very much in the style of other Stephen King books that we have seen in which um, children are being held against their will uh, and, and their psychic powers are being um, weaponized. We've seen this before. Um, it's a, a, a well-worn Stephen King trope that I'll get to later, but here it's important that in this novel we get the truth as to what is occurring. Okay. Um, the, the, the next mystery is introduced as Avery suggests that there's something very wrong um, within the back half, that there is an ominous droning hum. Um, and, and so again, that King just knows how to build the tension that not only is there a back half, not only do we know that Luke needs to escape, um, that he's going to try and escape at some point, we just don't know how. Like he's trying to hold in uh, this other ability that he has. Um, now there is this ominous droning hum and that something is very, very wrong with this place. What is it going to be? Is it going to be a door to a multiverse? Is it going to be um, some supernatural creature? Is it what, What's it going to be? Um, you know, to me, it was very reminiscent of Cell with the, the hives of the, the, um, of the zombies um, and how they were, you know, all synced up um, and they were like a, just a pack and a hive mind. I, 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 the first time I heard that hum, that's, that's, what I, that's where my mind went, that it was something very similar in nature. Um, and then we get the, the water tank torture scene. Um, we see just how strong, you know, Luke is. Um, in terms of emotional resiliency and physical resiliency, he doesn't break. He endures the torture. Um, it, it's it's a hard scene. Um, it's done very very well. Um, the, the, the 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 villains are monstrous um, with their 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 coldness and their um, their just their justification of their, the, the tortures that they inflict upon these children because it's the job. And I already discussed that, but this is very much on display here. And then Maureen assists him in getting out. Um, the scene is very tense. Um, it's very tense. It's very well done. Uh, I have some issues with it um, because it, 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 it... My issues with it come from the fact that 
Luke is not the originator of this plan. He is not... He is not the, the generator of his own escape. Um, he escapes because someone else created a plan for him. And for someone that is a genius, and I'll get into this, I, that's very, it's, to me, it's disappointing. Um, you know, I'm not sure about the ice scooper. Like, I, I would have liked a little bit more of imagination. Um, but, I mean, with all that said, him having to cut off his earlobe, oh, God, it's it's, it's oh, gruesome. It's it's like the, the gloving scene from Gerald's game. Um, all the way through the woods, down to the trail, into the river. I mean, the escape in the boat, it's a beautiful moment. It really is. It is cathartic. It is wonderful. And despite the fact that at this point in the book, I, I, I didn't find that I was, I couldn't wait to read. You know, I... Don't want to say it was a chore. It's never a chore. But it, when I when I read The Outsider, when I read, I mean, I read Elevation in just one one sitting. It's so short. But The Outsider, when I was reading The Outsider, I, when I wasn't reading The Outsider, I couldn't wait to get back to The Outsider. And that's when Stephen King's asked best. For me, my relationship with The Institute, I wasn't counting the minutes um, of, of getting back to the book. There was just a lot of repetition um, in in the scenes within the institute um that i felt i've seen before um that are are a bit um repetitive um and redundant um and to me i don't think that king was really adding too much new newness to it um but with that said whatever issues i might have had within the institute luke's escape it is is very very well done, and all of those emotional highs are hit, and it's soaring. Um, it's wonderful. We get the train ride to Sturbridge, Massachusetts, um, and then then we're off to Dupont. So we're we're heading back um, to the, the the location that started it all. Okay, and then we start with the chapter of Hell is Waiting. We start to get to the the science of it all, which I, I think is incredibly important, um, on page 283. Okay, so, as train 24297 was leaving Portsmouth, New Hampshire yard bound for Sturbridge, Mrs. Sigsby was studying the files and the BDNF levels of two children who would shortly be residing at the Institute. One was male, one was female. Ruby Red Team would be bringing them later in that evening. The boy, a 10-year-old from Salt State Mayor... Marie was just 80 on the BDNF scale. The girl, a 14-year-old from Chicago, was an 86. According to the file, she was autistic. That would make her difficult both for staff and the other residences. Um, res residents. If she had been below 80, they might have passed on her, but 86 was an outstanding score. BDNF stood for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Mrs. Sigsby understood very little of its chemical underpinnings. That was Dr. Hendrick Ballywick, but she understood the basics. Like BMR, basal metabolic rate, BDNF was a scale. What it measured was the growth and survival rate of neurons throughout the body and especially in the brain. Those few with high BDNF readings, not even 0.5% of the population, were the luckiest people in the world. Hendricks said that they were what God had intended when he made human beings. They were rarely affected by memory loss, depression, or neuropathic pain. They rarely suffered from obesity and the extreme malnutrition that, afflict, that afflicted anorexics and bulimics. They socialized well with others. 
were apt to stop trouble rather than start it. They had low susceptibility to neuroses, like obsessive compulsive disorder, and they had high verbal skills. They got few headaches and almost never suffered from migraines. Their cholesterol stayed low no matter what they ate. They did not tend to have below average or poor sleep cycles, but compensated for this by napping rather than taking sleeping aids. While not fragile, BDNF could be damaged, sometimes catastrophically. The most common cause was what Hendricks called chronic traumatic um, encephalopathy. CTE for short. As far as Mrs. Sigsby could tell, that came down to plain old headbanging concussion. Average BDNF was 60 units per milliliter. Football players who'd been in the game 10 years or more usually measured in the mid-30s, sometimes in the 20s. BDNF declines slowly with normal aging, much faster with those suffering from Alzheimer's. None of this mattered to Mrs. Sigsby, who was tasked only with getting results, and over her years at the Institute, results had been good. What mattered to her, to the Institute, and to those who funded the Institute and had kept it a hard secret since 1955 was that children with high BDNF levels came up with certain psychic abilities as part of the package, TK, TP, or in rare cases, a combination of the two. The children themselves didn't know about these abilities because these talents were usually latent. Those who did know, usually high-functioning TPs like Avery Dixon, were sometimes able to use their talents when it seemed useful to do so, but ignored them all the rest of the time. Almost all the newborns were tested for BDNF. Children such as the two whose files Mrs. Sigsby was now reading were flagged, followed, and eventually taken. Their low-level psychic abilities were refined and enhanced. According to Dr. Hendricks, those talents could also be expanded, TK added, to TP and vice versa, although such expansion did not affect the Institute's mission um, in the slightest. The occasional success he'd had with the pinks he was given as guinea pigs uh, would never be written up. She was sure Donkey Kong mourned that, even though he knew that the publication in any medical journal would land him a maximum security prison instead of winning him a Nobel Prize. Um, so this was an important and necessary uh, scene. Um, this sets up the chapter um, with uh, Mrs. Sigsby. It's incredible, and who had we had been introduced to a couple times, and. Um, before we get to spend time with her as a character, I was writing her off as kind of a throwaway Stephen King villain. But once we get to know her and get to see her tick, you know, I, I, she, she, he, he, you know, he just did the Stephen King thing where he's able to uh, take the concept of a character and imbue that character with, um, you know, with a life, and I, and her ambitions and her you just get to know her and he does it very very well um but i found that this was incredibly important for a couple of reasons one we get to know the antagonist and two we get to know the science and the why behind why all of this is occurring um and it's it's thrilling because from the get-go when the scene starts this chapter is called hell is waiting um boom here we go New perspective through Sigsby's eyes. Maureen is found dead. There is disorientation within the leaders of the Institute, um, within this branch of the Institute, this particular location. And there is uh, doubt and there is concern that is starting to grow. It's a wake-up call to Mrs. Sigsby, who realizes that things had gotten sloppy under her care. Um, and like I said... I, until this point, I, I was checking out. I 
I would put the book down, I would grab my phone, I would surf the web. Um, I just wasn't rushing to pick up the book. Um, this was a much needed shot in the arm for me. The inner workings of the Institute, um, you know, all of this, the, just the monotony of it all. I, I, I thought that it was incredibly well done. I thought it was incredibly important. Um, and then uh, we get, you know, you know, scenes like this. Um, uh, life here was good, good enough anyway, especially for men and women who'd eaten sand in the Mideast and seen fellow soldiers lying in shitty villages with their legs blown off or their guts hanging out. You get the occasional furlough. You could go home and spend time with your family, assuming you had one. Many institute employees did not. Of course, you, could, you couldn't talk to them about what you did, and after a while, they, the wives, the husband, and the children, would realize that it was the job that mattered, not them, because it took you over. Your life became, in descending order, the institute, the village, and the town of Denison Riverbend, with its three bars, one featuring live country music, and once the realization set in, the wedding ring would more often than not come off as Alverson's had done. So you just, you, you get the sense of what life is like. We have seen what life is like for um, the, the, the main character, um, or not the main character, but the, the Tim character as the night knocker. We saw what life was like for Luke within the Institute. Now we see what life is like for the employees of the Institute. So King is giving this all-encompassing look at, at life. And then we get the growing sense of unease as Sigsby and Stackhouse head towards the back half. Gladys finds the trench, the realization that one of the kids is missing. Avery is then tortured. Um, one of the kids betrays the plan, which is awful. Um, and then, um, you know, Luke meets a friendly stranger on the, the train. And the kindness of the stranger allows him to continue to escape um, as the, the Institute starts to um, starts to circle and chase and follow him. So even though he's out in the world, he's almost less safe now than he was before. Um, so all of this is, is really, really good. And then he, he winds up um, in DuPont and um, he meets Tim. So again, it goes back. We're you know now like 300-something pages into the book revisiting um, a location and a character that almost felt like a dream from another novel. Okay, and then we get Hell is Here. The Institute prepares to uh, descend upon this small town. And then back at the Institute, Avery is dunked in the tank and brought uh, to the back half. Um, but something is different, um, much like it had with Luke. Um, the something has now been unlocked within Avery. And then um, during the section, King is able to make an abstract concept concrete. And this is what I was talking about before. Uh, he's an absolute master of this in most cases. Um, he spends the time to have Avery remember the time the previous Christmas when he received a Lego set and began to cry at the thought of putting it together. He had the pieces, but didn't know how they went together. King does this for two reasons. One, because it shows just how tragic and sad Avery's life now is. And more importantly, gives us the metaphor for the group think that will occur when he goes to the back half. The others will mentally help him with the pieces to form the proverbial Lego castle. And that's why King is great at that. As the Institute goons begin to descend upon the town, the back half kids finally take charge, forming a circle and powering up. 
King undercuts the rising triumph of the back half kids getting revenge on their captors with the terrible truth of the function of the Institute. Its operation ensures the continued survival of the world itself. It's a great gut punch that comes at the right moment. You know, rather than giving us the good, you know, triumphing evil, like I said earlier, this novel is not about good versus evil. Um, there are no clear good guys versus bad guys. The bad guys are tasked with um survival of the world it's kind of a good thing you know and uh this is a case of the end justifying the means um it's awful it's awful awful and these children are um pawns in a great game that is designed to uh keep the game going and uh so he he's really playing with our emotions at this point and the story at this point is escalating for me, um, and for me, what had been at times a chore to get through, it, this is where it becomes impossible to put down. The Institute kids uh, first make their escape, doling out revenge, only to get trapped when the retrieval team has a good old-fashioned shootout. It's wonderfully orchestrated by King, which results with our good guys becoming the victor due to the community protecting its own. Um, so the, the, the villainous pragmatism of Sigsby is, is really put on display here, um, and it, it's very cathartic for Luke. Um, I'm very happy to see, you know, so we, we get the Institute juxtaposed against this small town, so everyone in the Institute, you know, huddles together to work towards the nefarious means, and then everyone in the small town works together to protect their own, and their own is anyone that wants to be part of this town. Which I think is beautiful, you know? So, I mean, it's it's Tim working with this town. It's this town working with him. And they're all circling around this child who is going to be taken again. And I really like the idea of a community taking this outsider child um, and rather than surrendering this child to the villainous forces in the world, they make this child their own, um, and they, they do what they can to, to help him. I think that that is a wonderful thing to read about in 2019. So, after the blowout, um, King uh, swivels the triumph by introducing a gut-churning compromise uh, that Luke would make a deal with Stackhouse. Stackhouse. Um, and then we have the chapter Big Phone. Um, so until now, i had been pretty frustrated, and I'll get to this, and upon the conclusion, I am still frustrated with the depiction of Luke's genius or lack thereof. Um, but uh, I, I, there's a little bit of a payoff here. I don't think that really adds up to everything, but there is a payoff that, that shows his, the, the, the tactic, um, his tactical mind um, working. So uh, on page... Uh, 471, Tim wanted quiet for Luke, who was now the brains of the operation. He knew most people would think him nuts for allowing a 12-year-old to create a strategy intended to save the kids in that tunnel without getting killed themselves, but he noticed that Wendy was also keeping quiet. She and Tim knew what Luke had done to get here. They had seen him in operation since, and they understood. What exactly was that understanding? Why that aside from having a yard of guts, the kid also happened to be a genuine bottled-in-bond genius. These institute thugs had taken him to obtain a talent that was a little more than a parlor trick. They considered his brilliance a mere adjunct 
to what they were really after, making them like poachers willing to slaughter a 12,000-pound elephant to get 90 pounds of ivory. I love that description. Tim doubted if Evans could appreciate the irony, but he guessed Sigsby could if she ever allowed the idea mental house room that was a clandestine operation that had lasted for decades, brought down by the very thing they had considered dispensable, this child's formidable intellect. It's a fantastic buildup. I don't think that we ever really get the payoff to that. Um, but I was so excited. I was so excited when that occurred. Um, and uh, I just, again, I, I don't think that King is able to really um, pay off the, the buildup of uh, Luke's brilliance. Okay, and then um, we get some really cool visuals here um, and some just good cathartic moments. Uh, Sigsby dies. We see the front half rising into the sky as um, as the, all the kids, you know, working together are able to telekinetically lift it into the air and throw it onto the ground. It's cool. It's great. Um, again, I don't know if this really adds up to Luke's brilliance um, as, you know, they... they their plan is to drive the car into the Institute, but with Sigsby in the front. And the big plan is to have Luke and Tim lay down in the back as the, the, the car is riddled with bullet holes. That's not a master plan to me. Um, you know, sorry. And then we get the lisping man. Um, you know, it's a purposefully anticlimactic conversation with the man with the lisp. Um, about uh, precogs and unreliability and can they take the chance um, on, on, on the world ending if they have this system in place that does ensure that the, the world continues even though there is variability and unreliability um, that, that doesn't fully justify the existence of the Institute. Um, so I do like that, that that question is posed there. And then one by one, they say goodbye. And then, then we have King writing the conclusion here. Tim almost let him go, then changed his mind. He caught up with Luke and took him by the shoulder. When the boy turned, Tim hugged him. He had hugged Nikki. Hell, he had hugged them all. Sometimes after they awoke from bad dreams. But this one meant more. This one meant the world, at least to Tim. He wanted to tell Luke that he was brave, maybe the bravest kid ever outside of a boy's adventure book. He wanted to tell Luke that he was strong and decent and his folks would be proud of him. He wanted to tell Luke that he loved him, but there were no words and maybe no need of them or telepathy. Sometimes a hug was telepathy. You know, remember when I used to read the most important uh, excerpt from the text that to me that 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 functions as that i think that that's a beautiful summation of everything that king was working with uh in this book you know um you, you, you had characters who would murder family bonds um like like he had written you know he would they would slaughter a an elephant for the tusks right and um you know here he concludes it with the formation of a new family um, and the importance of just the celebration, the physical need for contact um, and how everything was going to be okay and putting the humanity above the, the, the supernatural powers um, or the, the sci-fi powers here, um, whereas the Institute had, you know, stripped its own humanity um, in pursuit of gaining the, 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 the side effects um, 
of the powers and being able to weaponize them. So I, I think that that is a very nice um, and very humanistic conclusion to this story. Okay, um, let me get to my final thoughts here. So here, when it comes to the Institute, let, let me, okay. So I guess the best way to put it is this. Okay, we have seen kidnapped or locked up children before with Firestarter, with the Talisman, with the Sudnight Gardener section, with uh, the Dark Tower, um, with, like I said, uh, Everything's Eventual, um, with uh, Black House, with uh, Wolves of the Kala. Okay, we, we have seen this before. We have seen Escape from Prisons before. Shawshank. The Green Mile. Um, we have had scores of supernatural children or superpowered children. Carrie, Firestarter, The Talisman, Dreamcatcher, The Shining, Dr. Sleep, The Dark Tower, Black House, The Langoliers, The Regulators. We have had stories of resilient, tough as nails children. Talisman, Salem's Lot. The Gunslinger, It, The Body, Desperation, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, Dr. Sleep. I say all of this uh, because we have seen everything that King gives us in the Institute, but we've seen it done better. Here, it's less. It's a lesser version um, in so many ways um, than what we have seen before. Um, if King had not written... Um, Firestarter, The Dark Tower, The Talisman, Shawshank, Green Mile, Carrie, Firestarter, The Talisman, uh, Shining, Doctor Sleep, Black House, The Langoliers, The Regular, The Regulators, Tom Gordon. If if he hadn't done all of that before, this would be great. But the problem is, is that he has he has done it all before, and the beats that we get, the characters that we get, the plot points that we get, the villains that we get, the heroes that we get. Um, they are they are they are lesser versions of better stories that we have received um, from Stephen King, unfortunately. Um, and you know, I mean, in some of these, in some of these uh, stories that we've gotten, let, let's. I mean, the the biggest point of comparison I, I would say is is Firestarter. We have a character whose power level was so great there was the threat that it could literally crack the world in half. Here we get characters who don't even know that they have powers, and the powers that they have... I mean, he can knock a pizza box off of a desk, you know? I mean, it's a decision that he makes, right, to... Um, to, to really place it more in, in, a, in a grounded reality. It is less um, fantastic than some of his stories, which is a choice, and I don't, I don't mind it, but it is a choice that, you know, once he makes, you know, is going to be put up to critique because so many of his novels are fantastic, and he has been able to be able to blend um, something so fantastical with reality. He's always been able to ground everything in reality. That is his strength. Um, so you get Charlie McGee, who was able to literally set the world on fire. Um, and this girl was such an incredible um, power set, so vulnerable. At no point does she ever feel safe or does she ever feel in charge or in control. Um, right? So we, we get the most powerful uh supernatural, I guess you want to call it this, the charged kid, um, who also feels the most 
the, the, the most in danger at all times. And then conversely here, we have Luke, who eh, he's, he's not even the most powered of the kids in this book. And, you know, he's just as just as vulnerable. So that juxtaposition of powerful and powerless, I, I've seen it done better uh, in, in other King books. And, uh, you know, this, you know, when I, I had heard the that this book was coming and super, you know, powered children are were going to be taken, uh, you know, I, I first thought, oh, is this some sort of backdoor sequel to Firestarter? It very well could have butted up against um, uh, events of, the, of Firestarter. I'm fine with it not being a sequel to Firestarter. That's okay. That's okay. And, and, and now that he has presented this, I'm glad that he made the decision for the Institute to not be the shop. And I had read an interview in which when he first conceived it, it was going to be the shop. Um, but I'm glad that it's not because this exists in its own level of the multiverse. This is a story that is taking place, um, where the events of Firestarter did not happen or the, 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 the psychic powers that are occurring here are, they're such low level um, that we don't have the Dinky Earnshaws. We don't have anyone that's able to flip into other territories. We don't have the Shining. We don't have the, these, you know, very raw and powerful abilities. We don't have Carrie White. Um, I mean, Carrie White single-handedly could raise the institute to the ground and then here we have a bunch of kids who are barely able to lift you know the building into the sky and not even be able to affect the um the uh the the characters of the the institute because if the the bad guys know that they they, they might be psychically under assault that is enough to be able to prevent the kids from being to uh, inflict psychic damage upon them. You know, contrast that with um, Andy McGee, who it doesn't matter if you know what's coming or not. You know, before his mind bursts, um, he is able to have you do whatever he wants you to do. Um, So this is all to say that Stephen King made a choice. and it is very similar in some regards to his books. It is very different in regards to um, other books. Um, and I'm glad that seeing as how he made the decision to keep things so low level that he did not include the shop. Um, because that would not have felt uh, um, in, consistent with what he had created with other uh, superpowered uh, children. Um, as they had prior to this always been presented as more powerful. And also, you know, I mean, it's not just uh, redundant or repetitive or something that we've seen before within Stephen King. We've just seen it. You know, know, if Stephen King didn't write this, I would have thought that this was just some... Someone just watched the first season of Stranger Things and wanted to throw their uh, their hat in the ring of this evil organization uh, abducting children, right? I mean, it just it feels very, um, you know, uh, Hawkins Lab, uh, you know, ab- abducting uh, Eleven and, and working on on the children, um, you know, which is the the snake eating its own tail, right? Because that in of itself you know, feels very similar to what King, even though that is, you know, based on Mon, the, the Montauk experiments and everything, but um, that is very, the shop and, and Firestarter 
Um, and here, this seems to be kind of a carbon copy of, of what uh, Stranger Things had done. Um, but with all that said, I mean, the last 200 pages are pure adrenaline. The scenes intercutting back and forth from the Institute to Dupre ratchet up the tension until the novel just simply explodes. It is good. It's well done. I have issues with the book, but, you know, when King is on and King wants us to feel tension, he he knows how to do it. But going back to what I had said about Luke, um, I mean, why create this genius child and not have his genius intellect a part of the escape or the ruination of the Institute is beyond me. Um, honestly, the manner with which he was constructed, it was just it wasn't dissimilar from other Stephen King children, whether it be Mark Petrie of Salem's Lot or you know Jack Sawyer um, from uh, The Talisman. Um, you know, but both are well equipped with resolve and intellect. You know, but they're not the the level of genius that Luke is presented as, and I can't tell the difference. You know, Luke's brilliance is not a factor in his escape. The sympathy derived from an employee based on his involvement in her financial affairs is. You know, you might argue that had he not surfed the web to inform himself about debt is an example of his genius, but I would disagree. It's just an example of someone's ability to surf the web. The application of the knowledge that he is able to absorb and the knowledge that he already possesses is what I was looking for. That would have been more interesting if Luke had already possessed the debt information. It would have shown that for this woman, such information was of monumental importance. But for Luke, it was just something that he had picked up one Saturday afternoon when he was bored. Honestly, all he does with that computer is just Google. That's not a sign of genius. That's just a sign of living in 2019. I think that either, you know, King could have made him a typical King kid, you know, one with psychic powers, which is your typical King kid, or make him a genius. What King does is make him a genius who acts no different from your typical King kid. And in fact, when you stack him up against the other King kids, he's actually less than most of them. You know. Um, but my, my final thought here is the fact that the survival of our heroes occurs because they're able to get help from the townspeople um, and, you know, townspeople who own the guns um, enough to distract the Institute team who had uh, come to retrieve Luke. This could not have happened if Tim hadn't been able, um, haven't been in town, and because of Tim's gentle conversations and interest in the people of the town, um, you know, holding off the man's suicidal thoughts long enough for him to give our heroes a fighting chance, it's a beautiful illustration on King's part, showcasing the importance and the power of human connection in a time that we need it the most. Okay, Stephen Kingisms. Um, straightening paintings in hotel rooms. Tim does this. Um, and of course, this is uh, something that was uh, that was a character trait of, of Roland Deschain um, given to us in the first Gunslinger. Uh, creepy nautical paintings. Okay, in 1408 in Duma Key and here. Brilliant children. I've already talked about this. Catchphrase. Oh, I already mentioned it. Um, shots for dots. I did include it. Outdated references. Uh, this is a more recent Kingism, but it's one to note. Um, you know, he refers to cool kids as having backwards baseball hats and rock band t-shirts. He refers to teenage smokers as goth kids who listen to Pantera. You know, one of the rooms is decked out in Rugrats posters and G.I. Joes. These are, it is not applicable. These references to character traits are not applicable to 2019. Um, unfunny Stephen King joke. Um, just don't call her sport. Um, here's a Stephen Kingism. The staff member of an organization, oh, I'm sorry, the, the cleaning, um, uh, the, 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 
maintenance, the, the cleaning lady, cleaning man, staff member of an organization dedicated towards the imprisonment of a superpowered people who befriends the main character but is secretly in on it. That was seen before um, by John Rainbird in Firestarter. Um, a child running cross-country um, on a train. That has been seen before. Imprisonment and escape. We've seen that in Shawshank. Um, empowered children being used up. Um, that's very root um, from Wolves of the Kala. Here they are the Gorks. Um, approaching Vans of Doom. Uh, when the Vans uh, in... Ah, this book are coming for the small town. It's very, uh, very it invoked uh, the, the the vans in the regulators. Okay, we have some Easter eggs. Uh, uh, Gerda and Greta were standing with wide, frightened eyes. They were holding hands and clutching dolls as identical as they were. They reminded Luke of twins in some old horror movie. Uh, that is King actually giving a shout out to Kubrick's. Uh, adaptation of his work, which, you know, King famously cannot stand. Um, but, you know, in, in recent interviews and stuff, when promoting Dr. Sleep, he hasn't been knocking it. You know, he's been saying that this is a, it's a tribute in some ways to Kubrick's, uh, and it honors the, the legacy of Kubrick, which it's just kind of shocking for me to hear uh, Stephen King say that. We have a character by the name of Harold Cross, which could be just an accident, um, but it also could be a um, purposeful combo of Harold Lauder and Nadine Cross, two characters who worked together in The Stand. We have a uh, character by the name of George Allman who hosts a conspiracy show about supernatural activity called Outsiders, which I don't know if is a shout out to just the concept of the outsider um, as depicted from the book, The Outsider. And then we have Salem's Lot. It turns out that George Allman talked about the mysterious disappearance of the townspeople of Salem's Lot, Maine. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is my review of the Institute, which I enjoyed parts. I did not enjoy others. Um, there were chunks I thought were boring. There were chunks that I thought were thrilling. Um, to me, the parts did not equal up to a captivating whole. Um, I was disappointed more than anything else, but even a disappointing Stephen King book is worth reading so if you haven't read it and you listen to my review without reading it go and read it um and i look forward to seeing what david e kelly and jack bender are able to give us um because i didn't like mr mercedes they saw something with mr mercedes and they made me like it i hope that they do the same for the institute okay guys uh so we have um castle rock coming out this week check it out we have dr sleep coming out soon it's coming out in november i cannot wait for that uh we have a creep show on shutter check that out if you haven't done it i haven't done it i don't have shutter i'll probably be getting it after tax season um so i can't wait for that uh we got good stuff coming so um make sure that you keep uh subscribing to uh this podcast to get all the goods on stephen king and I'll be, be back soon, uh, maybe with my thoughts on Castle Rock, maybe on my thoughts for th full, sorry, I can't speak, full throttle. Um, and if you have some time on your hands, please uh, leave a review on iTunes. That would great me out. That would help me out greatly. Uh, and as always, you can write to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So everyone, until next time, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast. Let the midnight show shine.